Good morning, and welcome again, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, good that you could be here. In just a moment, we're going to take a look at Psalm 34 as we continue our series, Where is God When? And today it's Life is Good. Where is God when life is good? You know, if you separate those, you say life is good? Is it good? You know? Where is God when life is good? When things are going well, but when things aren't going so well as well, can life still be good? There's lots of ways you could look at that question. Uh, We're glad that you're here. If you have questions on this topic, we're going to post a phone number. It's also on the back of the handout that you received when you came in. And you can text questions to that number that you'd like me to address after my message. And uh, somebody will receive that, and they'll make sure that I receive it on the TV in just a moment. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, according to your promise, be present here. Each of us has a different need, a different prompting that that we would desire that that you would address in our life. some way in which, Lord, you would want to connect with us, reassure us, or encourage us, or strengthen us, or, or grant us a, a greater resolve about something that we're facing. Lord, whatever the hundreds of issues are that we're facing in our life, we know it's possible for you by inspiration to take your word and, and parcel it out among us so that we would hear a word that's appropriate for our life situation. So we begin this study of your word in expectation of your favor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So where is God when life is good? I I have a number of sayings that I repeat to myself that I found to be true uh, over my life. And one of them, perhaps you've heard me say, is that life is hard even when life is good. Life is hard even when life is good. It's true. And life isn't always good, so just imagine how life is in those situations. And it's not just based on my own personal experience, although I think you can learn through experience as well. You know, if you hit a wall enough, you realize you should probably avoid walls. Uh, But you can also learn from God's Word, and this is reinforced in the Word. In fact, my go-to psalm when I think about life and when I think about longevity of life and when I think about facing death is Psalm 90. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may live our lives with wisdom. Teach us to number our days. But in that same psalm, David also says, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. The best of them are but trouble and sorrow, and they quickly pass, and we all fly away, you know, based on the old song, you know, we all fly away. Now, I want to share Psalm 34, it's where we're going to jump off on this teaching, and um, uh, I use the New American Standard Version of the Bible. It's, it's a pretty accurate version based on the original languages, and it's helpful to me as a kind of a student of the Bible. Uh, the Bible that we have in the book racks in front of you is the NIV, the New International Version. It's also a very trustworthy, very accurate, and word-for-word translation of the Bible, but it's written more in the English uh, sentence structure as opposed to trying to follow the Hebrew sentence structure or the Greek sentence structure, but this, this book does a little bit more. Uh, but you may even find that stilted. It may even be hard for you to read that and, and not lose interest. And, and so I would encourage just a couple of other options for you. There are some paraphrases of the Bible that are, are still pretty accurate. They're not word-for-word translations. 
And it's always good to have a translation available so you can go back and actually check accurately what that passage says. But these paraphrases are also helpful. One is called the message and the other is called the living Bible. And I I encourage you to, to, to read those if you find the actual translations hard to read. In fact, today I thought I would just give you an example and read Psalm 34 verses 1 to 14 in the paraphrase called the message and you'll see how it uses the English vernacular and is easier to read. Psalm 34 verses 1 to 14. I bless God every chance I get. My lungs expand with his praise. I live and breathe God. If things aren't going well, hear this and be happy. Join me in spreading the news. Together, let's get the word out. God met me more than halfway. He freed me from my anxious fears. So look at him. Give him your warmest smile. Never hide your feelings from him. And that's what I love about the Psalms is they're feeling oriented. Never hide your feelings from him. When I was desperate, I called out. And God got me out of a tight spot. God's angels set up a circle of protection around us while we pray. So open your mouth and taste, open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. Worship God if you want the best because worship opens the doors to all his goodness. Young lions on the prowl, they still get hungry. But God seekers, those who worship him, are full of God. So come, children, listen closely. I'll give you a lesson in God worship. Who out there has a lust for life, don't we all? Can't wait each day to come upon beauty. Well, here's a key. Guard your tongue from profanity and no more lying through your teeth. Turn your back on your sin. Do something good. Embrace peace and don't let it get away. The thoughts of David. You know, where is God when life is good? Let me just say to you that, that this is a psalm of praise, and, and David is just overjoyed with what God has done in his life in this psalm, and it continues in that vein. But the reality is that David was in a pickle when he wrote this psalm. In fact, David was fleeing from King Saul. Because the people were starting to turn their admiration and their attention towards David and less towards Saul. The women and the kids were singing, Saul has killed his thousands, praise God. But David, David has killed his ten thousands, he's God's man. And you can imagine, you know, Saul wasn't happy with that and he wanted to, uh, he wanted to kill David. And David got that word, and so David was on the lamb. David was hiding. And he was hiding in the enemy cities. He was hiding in the cities of the Philistines. And somebody recognized him and said, this is a general. This guy over here, he's a general in Saul's armies. We have to kill him. And uh, the king would have done it too. Except David began to act like an insane man. And when they brought him before the king, the king says, I can't kill that guy. That would be bad karma. And so he, he said, he's, he's no threat to anybody. Just let him live. And this is the result of David's rescue. He praised God for being so good to him. Where is God when life is good? Let me, let me tell you a story about Irvin and Dorothy Ayler. 
Irvin and Dorothy Ehler. They live in a place called Twin Falls, Idaho. Now, this isn't my only gig. I've, I've been asked by Lutheran Hour Ministries uh, to visit some of their major donors in various places in the country. And, and so when I'm not here, I'm, I'm often traveling and doing some of that work as well. We also have a son whose family lives in Boise, Idaho. And, and so the people, the leaders at uh, Lutheran Hour said, when you're in Idaho and the next time seeing your kids, it'd be good if you visited some of our donors up there and encouraged them and thank them for their support. And I said, I, I can do that as long as it happens before November because you don't want to be traveling in the mountains of Idaho in November, December, January. You know how that goes. It, it gets bad. And so I said, we're going out there uh, to see uh, Josh and his family uh, in mid-October. Uh, I'll bounce around and see some folks. I, I have about... F- four major donors in that area uh, did my research that, that could use that kind of encouragement and a challenge to continue their support. And, and so um, my boss said, well, besides those, here are four or five other people who have uh, maybe not made major gifts, but have been really consistent and faithful givers over the years. And, you know, if you have time, it'd be good if you bounced in and saw them as well. And so we went out there on Wednesday. So uh, Wednesday night, we took them all to dinner. And Thursday, Friday, the kids were out of school. And they were out of school, of course, Saturday and Sunday, teachers, um, uh, conferences and things. And so we spent, you know, four days of just solid, heavy, you know, grandparent, grandchildren, you know, time together. It was awesome. And then they went back to school on Monday, Tuesday. And and Carol stayed there. And I said, well, I can bounce around and see some of our donors. And and so that's what I did. And uh, Twin Falls is about two hours from Boise. Uh, Boise is in southwestern Idaho, and this is moving further uh, east, and it's just kind of fun to drive. You drive through all these canyons on Highway, I think it's 87, and, uh, and I got over to Twin Falls, and that's the Snake River Canyon. It's just absolutely stunning. I can't tell you how many times you cross it, but this is, uh, on the right is where the freeway is, and on the left, as soon as you get across on the left there, that's Twin, that's Twin Falls, Idaho. And uh, the Ehlers were living over there. And, and so I looked at the research on them, and, and uh, it said they were born in 1921. Now, I'm not great with math, but I do have a calculator. And I, I took 2017 minus 1921, and I came up with like 96. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, I've often visited donors to Lutheran Hour, and I'll go up to a house like that, and uh, there are kids playing in the front yard. And they say, oh, no, the Ehlers, they, they don't live here anymore. You know, they died a couple years ago. And, and so I kind of expected that because this was people who had made cumulative gifts of, of um, a, a good amount over a number of years. And so I expected 96, you know, I'm not going to find those folks alive. Uh, and, and if I do, they're probably going to be in, in an assisted living care center. And sure enough, when I followed the address, I came up to a retirement center and I went to the building that was assisted living and that's what I expected. I thought, you know, they probably won't even recognize me and that's okay, I'll just go in and pray with them because, you know, shouldn't we? You know, shouldn't we encourage people who have been faithful and lived their life, you know, for Christ all these years and, and it's worth my time just to stop and do that. And so I didn't think much of it. And so I walked in and passed the nurse's station. I said, I'm here to see the Ehlers. And uh, I, I said, they're in room 359. She goes, yeah, it's down there to the left. And so I thought, well, okay. And, and so I went down there and I knocked on the door and they said, come in. <laughs> and, and so I went in and there were two impeccably dressed people sitting in recliners watching morning TV. They didn't have uh, hearing aids in and the TV wasn't blaring. And uh, I said, hi, I'm Pastor Howard. I'm, I'm from Luther Hour Ministries. Uh, just here to encourage you and, and thank you for your generosity over the years. And they said, yeah, we see that on your shirt. And I said, you do? 
(laughs) I didn't really say that, but I thought it. (laughs) And I said, well, according to my records, because the records aren't always right, I said, according to my records, you guys are like 90 years old. And she says, 96. And I just, just clapped my hands. I said, good for you. I mean, God has blessed you. And she said, hasn't he? Hasn't he? I said, so tell me a little bit about your story, because I love to hear people's stories, you know, good life stories. I said, so how did you meet? You know, were you both raised in Idaho? Idaho is kind of a tough place to live and make a living. And you go back to the 1920s. I can't imagine, you know, it's still a tough place to live. And uh, she said, no, I was born in Nebraska and raised in Nebraska. My husband's from, from here, Twin Falls. I said, so Nebraska, 1921, husband, Idaho, how in the world did you meet? She said, well, back in the 30s, uh, there was something called the Dust Bowl. I don't know if you ever heard of it. And um, I I said, I have read about the Dust Bowl, (laughs) you know. And she says, well, my daddy was a farmer and you just couldn't make a living in Nebraska in the the 30s. And and he heard from a friend that they irrigated out of the Snake River uh, up in Idaho and we should probably come up there and we could farm up there because there's plenty of water. And uh, she said, and so we did. I was a teenager, and we went up to Idaho, and she goes, it was, Pastor, it was like the Garden of Eden. And I just loved her spirit. You know, it was like the Garden of Eden. So we came up here, and we started farming, went to church, and that's where I met Irvin. And Irvin, you know, looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and says, yeah, I remember Sam said, are you going to ask her out or am I? You know, (laughs) and so, and that's how they got together. I said, so you've had a pretty good life. She goes, incredible how God has blessed us. Why does he do that? Why does God bless us? Why do we have such a good life? I said, well, I'm I'm sure you worked hard. She goes, well, we worked hard for sure. We we ran a dairy farm. And I I remember saying to Irvin, you know, we were milking 150 cows. And I said to Irvin, you're going to die milking cows, Irvin. And uh, she goes, is that how you want to die? And and so we decided to sell the herd so that we could have an easier life, that we could just farm. And I said, so when was that? She goes, I Irvin, I, I think we were 70, weren't we? We were 70. I think, yeah, we were 70. And, and, and so we sold the herd, and, and we just farmed for 10 more years. You know, it was so much easier. <laughs> they were 70 years old, and they decided they'd have an easier life by just farming. So we, so we acquired a little more ground, and we farmed for a while. And uh, she said, God has just, just blessed us. It's just amazing to us. And I thought about this psalm, and I thought about them as I read this verse from the psalm. The poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all his troubles. Think about her daddy, you know, with a family in Nebraska, Dust Bowl. How am I going to provide? People, people committed suicide. They died. They didn't know. My, I know my dad's family raised kids that weren't from, uh, that weren't theirs because nobody could take care of those kids. They didn't have enough. And those were desperate times. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. You know, they were living proof of that. And she says, God has been so good. Why has God been so good to us, Pastor? I could think of about four reasons. You know, every day they got up and fought the good fight. You know, they worked hard. All those things. But they understood that that came from God. I love this psalm because this psalm is inspired to encourage people who are down and out. In fact, the actual translation of verse 2 is, I will glory... I will glory in the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. If you are afflicted, God wants you to glory in the Lord. This isn't a psalm about prosperity. It isn't, you know, if you are faithful to God, you won't have any trouble. The psalm doesn't say that. Nowhere in the Bible does it promise that. I know preachers preach that sometimes, but that's not true. 
in verse 19 of the same psalm, Psalm 34, verse 19, it actually says, the righteous person will have many troubles. Say that with me. The righteous person will have many troubles. You can be righteous. You can be living a godly life and you will have many troubles. We aren't spared troubles because we're righteous. You know, it gives us an opportunity to witness to other people who are also having troubles. How does a Christian handle that? The righteous person will have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver him from, their, from them all. Yeah, I ask him to, this isn't the Ehlers, could be, but it isn't the Ehlers, but I ask him to put a picture of an older couple uh, on the screen because, you know, we conduct a lot of weddings here and, and uh, in the wedding vows, we always say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health. And uh, I always think, you know, they're not listening, you know. <laughs> they want better, richer, and healthy. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be for them. They know it's going to be that way for them. And in fact, it's not. You know, the righteous are going to encounter various troubles. And I, and I think as I sit there and, and I see older folks have been married 50 years, you know, who come in maybe with a walker and they're smiling and nodding because they know. They know how life's going to be for this couple. It's not going to be all sugar and light. You know, and uh, I often think if, if you would ask those people who have been married 50 years or ask anybody over the age of 80, what were the best years of your life? What was the best experience in your life? I guarantee you they won't talk about the new car they bought. They won't talk about the, the bigger home that they acquired. They will say, you know, we went through a rough patch, man. And, and you know, as I remember back on that time, that was that was pretty special. You know, we had to lean on each other and we had to lean on the God. See, uh, where is God when life is good? Define life is good for me. Because life is good doesn't mean that, that you're always wealthy. It doesn't mean that, that you have everything. It doesn't mean that you can buy anything that you want. Life is good has little to do with your circumstance. Uh, recently, we were out in our front yard and we were putting up a uh, a block wall uh, tore down some stuff that was growing over my house and pulled it all out and you know wanted to clean it up and put a retaining wall in there and, and put some dirt in there and, and our granddaughter Cammie who's right over here eight years old she was out there helping me and that's just so much fun to have your kids uh, helping in a project and because they start talking and, and she says Papa she says were you and Grandma always rich <laughs> she goes were you ever poor and uh, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, in her mind and, and uh, clearly, you know, we are blessed now, financially uh, blessed. But uh, I, I think it's, it, it's too bad that people don't see some of the struggle that folks who now have acquired some things had when they began. I was talking with Pastor Garrett earlier this week, you know, what a blessing it was to be raised in pretty modest homes. Both he and I have that same experience. You know, our, our home when I was a kid didn't have running water. It, it had an outhouse out back. I'm pretty young to have experienced that, but that was the reality of my life. I remember when I was 16, my friends from high school had a surprise party for me and came to my house and I was mortified that they would see how I lived. Because when you go to school, they don't know. And if you have clean clothes on and you know, they could assume that, that you were from as wealthy a home as they were. Uh, but it just wasn't the case. And, and even in our own personal life in the past, it, it, uh, my answer to her was, you know, we haven't always had a lot of money, but we were never poor. We were never poor. Poor is a mindset. I was never poor. Our first home cost $60,000. 
not so long ago, somebody put it in the offering plate, and uh, you don't have to raise a hand if it was you, but uh, they put it in the offering plate, I'll start tithing to the church when I have a home as nice as Pastor Howard. I thought, it doesn't work that way, dude. (laughs) I wish I could get to you and realize that's not how it works. You know, to be happy with what you have. I had a $60,000 house. I loved that house. We raised our kids in that house. It was an awesome, sweet house. You know, our first car was a 1969 Chevelle. And it was, it, was in, uh, it, it was a good running car, but it didn't have anything special in it. And uh, I, I remember uh, we bought it. It was six years old. And we held it for another six or seven years. And uh, the, the floor pan underneath the driver got so rusted out, it splashed water up on you. So I put a piece of plywood there. And, uh, you know, that was an awesome car. Loved that car. You know, it was, it was such a blessing to us. We didn't have a lot of money, but we were never poor. You know, we, ha- we had a good life then. In fact, I walk through my house today and it annoys Carol because I say, this is such an awesome house. I love this house. You know, it's, it's all about a mindset. And, uh, you know, David wanted to encourage people who feel afflicted uh, that they can still have a good life. God encourages skeptics, people who don't believe that, to give faith a chance. I love this passage. And you may have heard it before, it's, it's often quoted, but you might not have known where it was. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is, are those who take their cover, who take their protection, who take their refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, if you are not a God follower, it's okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm glad you're at least, you know, listening. Uh, if out of respect for somebody else it is, or you've just come to check it out. If you're a skeptic, you're welcome here. Whether you're watching online or whether you're in the room, we're glad you're here. And, uh, and you're welcome too. God loves you. Um, but I know that some of the things that God says are hard to believe. They just seem counterintuitive. You know, a kind word turns away wrath. No, man. It's time for some retribution, some payback. You know, if, if they're being mean to me, I'm going to be mean to them. That's the way it works in life. That's how you protect yourself. Get some walls in place. It's not what God says. If a man asks for a blanket, give him also your coat. Really? Let him take advantage of me? Yeah, let him take advantage of you. The least will be greatest. No, the least will be least. That's what the world says. Or give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken, flowing over. I gotta gotta tell you that I wasn't always a tither. Um, In fact, Carol's dad, my wife's father, was the one who... He just made too much of this. It annoyed me, actually. Uh, when I was first dating Carol, when we were engaged, and uh, even er- early in my ministry, he would always say to me, and I, I, can, like, I can like see him saying it, he would say, you know, Steve, you don't really make gifts to God until after you tithe, because the tithe is God's. That's not a gift. You, know, you owe that to him. After that, you start giving. And I was never a tither. I wasn't raised in a tithing family. My mom and dad never tithed the, the, in one day in their life. Uh, but eventually, I began to believe that, and I began to act that way. And it was interesting what, that, how that changed me and how that, and how that blessed me. And I think he, he was not a wealthy man. He, he lived in a very small house on piers uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas. He carried mail for a living. Didn't make, didn't make a big salary, but he was never poor. He was a generous guy. I remember sometimes when I was making more money than him, I'd go down there and he'd say, your car needs some new tires. Let's go get some new tires. He'd take me over to Sears and put new tires. i say, you can't afford this. He goes, no, I can, let, let me do this for you. You know, it was just his mindset, just his attitude. He was, he didn't have a lot of money. He's never poor. He had everything he ever needed. He lived within his means. And and so uh, I think he knew that he didn't have a job that was 
going to make him rich. I was entering a profession that was not going to make me rich. I guarantee you, the pastor who confirmed me uh, when he retired had lived in parsonages all his life, and, and he moved from a parsonage in his last gig to uh, a trailer that he rented. You know, so th- I expected that would be my future. It was okay with me, but I didn't expect to ever uh, own a place of my own. And God has treated me differently. But I think he wanted me to know the difference between an attitude of thinking that you have to have things to have a good life versus you have to have the Lord to have a good life. And there's a difference. I can show you a lot of people who have things and aren't happy. And I can show you a lot of people who don't have things and are overjoyed with their life. God wants you to taste and see that it is good. Now, David is speaking from experience. He says, come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. Listen to me, like a good teacher, like these people that went on retreat. You know, you put them with older people who have some life experience that they can pour their life experience into them. You know, that's, that's what God would have for us. You know, to just know that, it, that it's gonna be awesome. I've been where you are. I've told the story about Frida before, but she was 100 years old when I first met her. She wasn't a member of my church, but somebody said you should go talk to her. And she'd had a hard life. I said, how have you maintained your spirit when you've had a, a, a husband who died in, a, in an industrial accident and you've had a daughter who died of, of cancer? How have you maintained your attitude? And she says, you know, uh, my husband and I used to always say when something bad would happen, I wonder what God is going to do. I wonder how he's going to turn this into a blessing for us. That, that was her mindset. How is God going to use this as a blessing for us? Because she knew the passage that says God doesn't cause all things. Doesn't cause all things. Dion talked last week about how, you know, if you choose the wrong path, God doesn't have to punish you. The wrong path leads to the wrong place, and there's consequence. You know, God's there to rescue you. He doesn't even have to punish you. And, and uh, she just knew that, that God was going to bring some good out of it. God doesn't cause all things, but God can cause all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, it, it's good when you can speak from experience. In, in, in fact, it's not your circumstance that will determine whether you have a good life or not. It's more your attitude. I want to share this quote with you from uh, a guy who was a mentor to me, Chuck Swindoll, uh, who wrote this. It's, it's often spoken of, I, I think, Let's read it together and and you should look it up and you should keep it in mind. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstance, than failure, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or even your home. The remarkable thing is when we have, is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude with which we will embrace that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are all in charge of our attitudes. Now David does, further in the psalm, get to this important lesson. He said, so where do you stand with God? You know, are you following that path that's gonna lead to the wrong place? Are, Are you not being obedient 
to the challenge that God is laying down for you as a Christian person? Or uh, are you simply not trusting that he can do what he says he will do? Either you're, either you're engaged in sin or you're engaged in lack of faith. If that's true, David says you should turn away from that. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from that which you know is wrong and do that which you know is right. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, the reason I put this picture up here is to compete with Dion. <laughs> Not really, but Dion likes to throw up pictures of his past. And, and, and uh, I want to talk about this guy. This, this is actually when I was at the seminary studying for ministry. And uh, this guy was not sure that he could be a pastor. This guy did not believe that he had what it took to be a pastor. Didn't belong. uh, He shouldn't even think that he could be a pastor. Uh, I was raised in a poor family, which doesn't matter. But my folks weren't educated. Almost everybody else at the seminary had educated parents. They were pastors themselves or teachers, uh, or at least had a college education. My folks didn't. And uh, it wasn't a high priority for them. They didn't care whether I got a college education or not and thought it was useless, probably, uh, for the most part. Uh, but not only that, my dad was a drinker, and he was a World War II vet. And, you know, uh, he had kind of that post-traumatic stress uh, attitude about life that comes from all the things he suffered in the South Pacific for so many years. And, and so, so I didn't believe that that, kind, that, was, that was not necessarily good training to be a pastor. You know, uh, you know I kept, kept that part of my life kind of a secret. And, and then also, seminary is kind of hard. You know, you have to learn things like Greek and Hebrew. And uh, I wasn't sure that I was cut out for that. And I remember I was going to quit the seminary because I was fearful. I was fearful I didn't belong. I looked around my classes. I was nothing like those guys. You know, they, they were kind of scholars. Like, they, they loved some of that, you know, pious behavior. And they loved to wear the collar and do things which, obviously, you know, if you've known me a while, it's not important to me. And, and, uh, and I thought, I don't fit in here. And so I should just leave. Plus, you know what, I wouldn't have to say Greek. <laughs> and, and most of those guys who came to the seminary already took Greek and Hebrew in college. And so they came to the seminary ready and, and able to study. I didn't take any of that in college. I was studying for something else. And so I had to take Greek and Hebrew on the side with no credit so that I could take the actual courses that would eventually allow me to become a pastor. And so I said, just let's forget this. This is hard. This is difficult. I don't belong here. And so I was going to leave. I went to a, a chapel service. And I don't remember what was said, but I remember how I was struggling and I was, I was ready to, to resign. And, uh, and it, it touched me in some way that I remember, it's one of those moments in life where you can see yourself. And I was sitting, I sat down on a bench outside chapel on the way to get my mail. And uh, I said, okay, God, I, I feel you want me to do this. And uh, if you don't want me to do this, there are a hundred ways you can throw me out of here. And please exercise one of them. And, uh, but I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm just going to do my best. And if that's not good enough, that's okay with me. Like the weight of the world went off my shoulders. And from then on, it was fine. And I engaged and my attitude forever changed. You know, if you're fearful, if, if you're uh, involved in something that's not godly, turn from that and let God pour into your life uh, that which he wants you uh, to know and let him lift you up and give you the strength and pursue it. 
God is pleading for the opportunity. He's pleading for the opportunity to help. He loves you like no one else loves you. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. I mean, there's no question the limit of his love. And there's no question the limit of his power. I love this scripture from Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he would not spare his own son, but he let his son die for you. I have sons. I wouldn't let any of them die for you. (laughs) But if he gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with that sacrifice that he made for you, if he loved you that much, won't he take care of your lesser issues in life? Don't you trust him? Hasn't he proven himself trustworthy? And who can bring a charge against you? Who can say you're not worthy? Who can say you don't deserve it? God has chosen you. He's made you worthy. It is God who declares you perfect. So who can declare you not perfect? No one. Christ died for you. More than that, he didn't just die. He didn't just lay it down. He also raised it up to life. He has power. He defeated death. So what can he defeat in your life? And he now sits at the right hand of God. He's interceding for you. You have an advocate an advocate with God, so I don't care what you're facing. You know, where is God when life is good? He's right there. He's right there wanting to celebrate with you. And even when life isn't so good, he's waiting for you to turn to him so he can celebrate good life with you. Now, we don't have altar calls in this church. We have never have. We're a church from the Reformation. Uh, and we don't believe it's a decision that you make for God that saves you. We believe it's a decision that God made for you, Right? You know, he died on the cross for you. That's what saves you. It's not your choice of him. It's his choice of you. And so we don't put that notion in the mind that you make a decision for him. Uh, But it is proper to declare yourself uh, to be a child of God. That's a proper thing. and It's a good thing. We don't do that enough. There's another passage in the Bible that David also wrote from another Psalm, Psalm 51. This says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. If you want God to do that for you, if you want God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation and to renew a right spirit, you know, an aligned spirit with God in your life, I'm going to ask you to stand. If I was down there, I would stand because every day I need, you know, uh, God to renew a right spirit within me and to restore to me the joy. I want to embrace every day with joy uh, of the good life that God intends, even if at the moment it's not so good. And and so if you're standing next to somebody who's standing, just put your hand on their shoulder and I want you to pray for them. And hopefully somebody's doing that for you if you're standing. Repeat after me, Lord, restore the joy of your salvation to this your child and renew a right spirit in them. Amen. You can have a seat. If there are questions that you've texted in, let's see what you got here. And if we shouldn't assign all bad things in our life to God's doing, should we also avoid assigning all good things in life to God? No, I, I, I don't think you should. I, I, I think if you, he, it isn't tit for tat with God. You know, if you're walking in the way that God wants you to walk, good things are going to happen. That's why he has the Ten Commandments. Says, you know, do this and it's going to work for you. That's why parents correct children, right? If you live this life, good stuff's going to happen. So it's not always God dumping it into your life. It's just the result of the consequence of doing right. 
just like it's the consequence of sometimes doing wrong. So no, I don't assign all bad things to God and I don't assign all good things to God, but I do know that God is the creator of this world and there are principles that work in this world and there are principles that don't work in this world and he wants you to know them and he wants you to embrace them. Next question. Why is it that some people who've had a prosperous, good life and end up very bitter and full of worry when others are full of optimism and gratitude? That's curious to me, yeah. I I don't think they realize the greater gift is where it comes from. You know the story of the lepers, the 10 lepers, and and Jesus, Jesus healed all 10 of them. Only one came back to give him thanks. Only one recognized that it came from God. Did the others not experience healing? They experienced healing. But the greater blessing is knowing where it comes from. I've visited in my work with LHM and even here, I've visited people who are very prosperous but are very stingy about it and don't recognize it comes from God. I, I don't think that they are truly as blessed as those who have less who know it's all from God. And I wish that everybody did. In fact, I think when it comes to tithing, it isn't about we need your money. It's about you need to know that that money and, and your blessing came from God. By tithing, by making him first, you're constantly a reminder to yourself. In fact, the Bible says, don't be like a Christian who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Practice your faith. That way, the practice of your faith is always reminding you that you are God's child. Don't, don't just look in the mirror and walk away and, and do it one time. You know, live that life. And uh, you're right, there are people who are prosperous. And like I said, that isn't necessarily good. That isn't necessarily a good life. I've seen people argue and be very bitter over mom and dad's money uh, at their funeral. And I think that's not a blessing. Next. I struggle with the imbalance of wealth of faithful people in America and the poverty of faithful people elsewhere. Where is God in their cries for rescue? This is a great passage. There's a passage in Corinthians, and I'm trying to remember. I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I know it is, 2 Corinthians 9, where he says, uh, God isn't a socialist. He doesn't say that, but it's what he means. He, He says, God has distributed wealth differently in the world. You know why? So that those who have can help those who don't. And they're blessed by helping, and the other people are blessed because a person who has shows their faith by doing this. That's God's setup. God, God wants imbalance in the world so that we can be grateful for his help through somebody else of faith and also so that we can say, God, you've given this to me. And so it's a way in which we can express our faith. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not a result of sin. It's just God's design. And so that's why God says, you know, you are blessed to be a blessing. That's why he told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, but not just for you, not just to see how much you can acquire, how many sheep you can have, but so that you can use your blessing to be a blessing to others. So I think there is imbalance, and it's not a bad thing. It can be a good thing. All right, we're done. I, I, told, I told Dion last week, you should just, when you read a question, just say yes, next question, and uh, you cover more questions that way, you know? So <laughs> that isn't what we should do. Let's rise and pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, the lesson of David. It leaks, Lord. Your truth leaks out of my life. Because while I'm a Christian, while I believe what you have to say and, and, and I struggle uh, to apply it in my life, uh, I'm also a person of flesh. I'm also a sinner. And your will sometimes leaks from my life. And so thank you, Lord, for reminding me uh, through David, his inspired words, and, and through your involvement in my life, through your prompting of my life, how much you love me and how much you want me to celebrate and embrace and enjoy life in every condition. Lord, let us be a people of that kind of 
um, experience, that kind of example, that kind of witness in our sphere of influence. We ask it in Christ. Amen.